University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. Well, this last week, it actually hit the 35th anniversary of Back to the Future. The movie came out in 1985, and 1985 was a great year for movies. Uh, That was the year The Goonies came out, The Breakfast Club, Out of Africa. Uh, You had movies like The Color of Purple, Rocky IV, Mad Max, uh, Fletch, Spies Like Us, and of course, St. Elmo's Fire. Now, if you don't recall the story of Back to the Future, it's the story of a teenager who goes back to the past when his parents are a teenager when they met for the first time. Except his actions in the past begin to affect his actions in the future, so he has to fix what's happening in the past in order not to affect his actions in the future, the confusing name Back to the Future. Have you ever thought to yourself, if I could go back to one moment in time and change that moment, my life would be so different. Have you ever wished you could have a do-over? See, the Bible talks a lot about the past, about mistakes and regret. And typically, when we talk about this in the Bible, it's in certain terms of a villain, like King Saul who, in his many regrets, like Cain for killing his brother, like Joseph's brothers, like Judas Iscariot. And there's no greater villain that's the center of the past of mistakes and regret than Saul of Tarsus. And for this week's focus in our Dumping Jezebel series, boldly stepping beyond life's greatest obstacles, we're going to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 9, verse 10. Now, when we are first introduced to the character of Saul in the Bible, he is a zealous persecutor of the church. The church was experiencing immeasurable growth in its early days, and Jesus' followers are are expanding, they're diversifying, they're ministering, they're developing authentic community and growing exponentially. But all of this comes to a sudden halt in chapter 6 when we learn that the beloved deacon Stephen is arrested, put before the synagogue rulers in the Sanhedrin. He's falsely accused of blasphemy. They drag him out of town, and they stone him to death. And we're told by the narrator in the book of Acts that the people, as they were stoning Stephen, they laid their cloaks at the feet of a man named Saul of Tarsus. There he was uh, approving the religious motivation of killing Stephen. Now Saul's zeal for persecuting the church grew only stronger when he had the authority to go from house to house, village to village, to drag Jesus' followers away to prison and for some to certain death. And as the narrator didn't capture Saul's religious, righteous hatred for the church, chapter 9 begins with, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. This guy did not like the church. And from his very words, we learn that Saul came from a great family, both a Roman and a Hebrew citizen. He went to the best schools and studied under the best rabbis of the day. He was an expert in the rabbinic law. He was legalistically faultless, he claimed. So what does a righteous man do when he sees the growing threat of heresy within the Hebrew people faith? Well, he fights back with the so-called 
fervor and passion of God. I imagine he saw himself in the same class of the ancient prophets who came before him. He probably saw himself like Elijah standing before the people as they split their allegiance to both Baal and to God. So as we turn to chapter 9, we learn that Saul is on his way to Damascus on the road to round up some of the ringleaders of this rebel-rousing group of Jews who are now following this man named Jesus of Nazareth, who this insurrectionist and a heretic had been crucified years before. But on the way to Damascus, Saul does not expect that he will encounter the very Jesus whose followers he is persecuting. It says that, that he was stopped in his tracks by the blinding light of Jesus' righteousness. The man literally fell off his horse, blinded by the light of Jesus. The men who were with him take him to Damascus, where for three days he did not eat or drink, and he sat there in blind disarray. And it says this in verse 10. In Damascus, there was a man, a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judah on the straight street and ask him for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias said, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Let, let's be honest. If we were Ananias and God came to us with such a message to go and help this murderous man who's been oppressing these people, who's probably on his way right now to do the very same thing to people I love, our response to God would probably go something like this. Uh, God, we got a bad connection. Can you call later on? Nobody would want to go and do the very thing that God is asking him to do. In this very day and age, we see that, that Ananias is encountered by this, by this vision of God to do the most unthinkable thing, to go and to minister to the man who has been arresting and killing fellow followers of Jesus. And Ananias' concerns are legitimate, and yet it says in verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Get this, verse 18. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking in some food, he regained his strength. This is one of the more fascinating passages in all of Scripture. Saul's story begins one way and takes a complete 180-degree turn from tyrant of Jesus' church to new follower of Jesus within a matter of days. And you have to love the literary imagery of Saul being struck blind by Jesus. And when the time was right, the blindness falls off his eyes like scales. 
You could call them scales of regret. Regret will will become an overburdening theme in Saul's life over the next several years. And it could not be more tumultuous than in the coming days in Damascus. Because there Saul will have to face the church, the people that he originally came to persecute. He will have to face the synagogue leaders who knew why he was coming to that town to persecute the church. You can imagine why these local believers doubted Saul's conversion. You can imagine that was magnified and years later when he stands before Peter, James, and John in the church in Jerusalem, the guilt and remorse for what he had done to these people and to their families and to Jesus' church. And you can imagine the local church leaders had a hard time believing that the zealous man who persecuted this church has now become a follower within this church. The scales of regret could not have fallen off easily from Saul. You see, the guilt of the past has to weigh heavy on him. In, in North Carolina, one of the big grocery store chains is a, a, a called Food Lion. And every year, the story runs about the same time about a man who had early on invested in Food Lion when it was a one-site grocery store, but pulled out his investment in order to buy, of all things, a riding lawnmower. And the fact that his couple thousand dollars of stock in this riding, that he then purchased this riding lawnmower, would now today be worth millions of dollars. But we've heard stories like this before. Like, did you know that if you had purchased a stock in Amazon, a single stock of a thousand dollars in 2010, it would be worth fourteen thousand dollars today? That's a net growth of one thousand and two hundred percent, if not more. You see, oftentimes we hear moments in our life and we have regrets. Or as Frank Sinatra said, regrets? I've had a few. (laughs) I wish I would have asked her this. I wish I would have told him no. I wish I had not gone there that night. I wish I had said yes to this. I wish I had not said that. I wish I had said it sooner. I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I had done this. I wish I would have known. I wish I didn't know. I missed out on. See, every day, our jobs, our relationships, our conflicts, our opportunities, our our words, our thoughts, our actions, our prospects for feeling regret and remorse. Psychologists talk about the five most common forms of regret center around near miss. I was close to but came short of. The feeling of responsibility, lost opportunity, changeable decisions. There were, there were too many variables, and I had to only pick one, and I got the wrong one, and a loss of social belonging. You see, regret can lead to a lot of would've, could've, and should'ves. Do you remember Bill Murray's movie from the 90s, Groundhog Day? It, it tells the story of a cynical TV weatherman, Phil Connors, that converges on Puxatawney, Pennsylvania for the annual Groundhog Day celebration. Except when, when he wakes up the next day, the day after Groundhog Day, it's still Groundhog Day all over again. Again, he experiences the same thing day after day, over and over again. Every morning he wakes up to the same song of Sonny and Cher singing, I Got You Babe, as it blares in the alarm clock. And every day, as it repeats, he chooses to be a jerk to the same people, to allow the same hurts to happen again and again, 
Soon he, he loses himself in the sanity of living out the same day over and over again with the same people he's wrong, with the same mistakes that he's experienced day after day. And so soon it leads him to try to kill himself, except he kills himself and wakes up in the same bed the next day, repeating the same thing over and over again with Sonny and Cher blaring out, I got you, babe. You see, this is what the feeling of regret can do to all of us. It's that day after day living with remorse of the wouldas, couldas, and shouldas. We, we fail to realize that these feelings of remorse and guilt, remorse and, guilt and disappointment and, and self-blame and frustration and shame and, and sorrow are like a vice grip on our heart and our soul, squeezing and constricting us from being the person that God desires for us to be. And regret can be an all-consuming emotion, leaving us with a desire to have a redo, only wasting our time consumed with redoing what will never happen again. You see, unprocessed regret creates false boundaries that prevent us from moving past and risking our openness to ourselves and to others and forgetting those who have wronged us. It, it prevents us from reconciling with those we've wronged. It prevents us from opening ourselves up to new possibilities. And regret can lead to a lot of negative emotions such as guilt and disappointment and self-blame and frustration. And regret can lead to uh, this feeling of dysphoria, which is a feeling of uneasiness and anxiety. Regret can lead to depression and emotional and spiritual paralysis. Regret can lead to inaction. If we avoid doing anything that we might regret later, then we disengage our relationships, our opportunities, and eventually life itself. And the irony is there are no more painful source of regret than that. You see, regret can build up walls because it only serves as a defense against the risk of loving, which leads us to a darker purpose, allowing people to hide the deepest pain of regret. And, and there's no such, there is no such thing as, as no regret because God has given us this emotion to feel regret. In fact, if you're not feeling regret for decisions or words spoken or people affected, it could be a sign of something worse within your life. You see, without regret, we cannot learn from our mistakes and how to not repeat them in the future, but it's the level of regret that we become consumed with in our life. And it's like this. When I was a kid, I had this healthy fear of quicksand. Uh, there was no quicksand around us, right? It probably got my fear from uh, movies like The Princess Bride. Great scene with quicksand. But what they say about quicksand is that victims actually tend to panic and move frantically around, which draws them deeper and deeper into this pit. And they're rapidly moving. Eventually, they find themselves consumed with sand. Experts say that the best thing you can do when you're in quicksand is to slow down, to take a deep breath, to calm yourself, and try to slowly work your body perpendicular to the surface. And since regret can be like emotion of quicksand, we frantically move through the emotions and experiences that do us no good. It's just, especially, it becomes to the point where it begins to overwhelm us. And the first and most important thing to know about opposing force of restricted regret, if we want to begin to overcome this in our life, we need to understand that the opposing feeling of, of regret is unconditional love. We step back into the story of Saul of Tarsus. We see the very essence of unconditional love in the display of Ananias. Through God's calling, Ananias was not only willing to go and see this great persecutor of the church, but he was willing to care for him 
with, blind, with curing his blindness, giving him something to drink, giving him something to eat. Ananias was living out the very perplexing words of Jesus to love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you, to bless those who curse you, and to serve those who mistreat you. Ananias is living out the parable of the Good Samaritan. And Ananias' care for Saul didn't stop there. He nurtured Saul back to health. He taught him about Jesus, and then he baptized him in this new faith. Ananias then backed Saul as he faced the church in Damascus, no longer a mission of judgment, but one of companionship in Jesus. Ananias personifies unconditional love. And whether you live in the regret of your past mistakes or the failings of other people, it's difficult to believe that you are deserving of God's love. It's, it's difficult to believe that others might give you love without condition, without, without something you have to do to earn it back. And unconditional love is not the removal of mistakes. It does not dissolve the consequences of our failings. In fact, the truth is there's no quite solution like that of, of feeling pain and loss and disappointment than encountering it with love. And unconditional love reminds us of the pain and loss and disappointment, but it reminds us that we can experience it and survive it and overcome it. And, and for we are taught that God's love is unconditional. God's love is patient and kind. It's never jealous or envious. It never boasts or it's never proud. It's never haughty or selfish or rude. It, love does not demand its own way. It's, it's, it's not touchy. It's not irritable. It doesn't hold grudges. It will not hold on to the notice of others' wrongdoing. God's unconditional love for us does not look past the injustices, either committed against us or by us, but it believes in us and desires what's best for us, always standing beside us. And God's love transforms an enemy into a friend, hate into peace, pride into humility, darkness into light, and death into life. Do you believe that God loves you despite what others have done to you? Do you believe that God loves you despite maybe the choices you commit against other people? Going back to Bill Murray's Groundhog Day for a moment, Phil Connors gets lost in the regret of reliving and experiencing mistakes again and again and again. And eventually he's moved beyond despair of, of realizing that, that ending his life isn't fixing anything, so he sets out in a course correction. He chooses kindness instead of sarcasm. He sets out to save lives instead of preventing disasters to care for people experiencing loneliness, to serve without any condition of what others can do for him, to gain a better perspective of life. And he learns to allow himself to love others in the same way he loves himself. He learns to let others love him in return. You see, another pivot that must take place as you experience regret in your life is to move to reparative action. As, as we follow Saul's story, we see that he stands before the church in Damascus. He owns what he was and what he intended to do, and he quickly comes to terms with the religious leaders who had empowered him with righteous anger towards Jesus' followers. And then he has to stand before the church, the very people that he had stoned Stephen. We can learn from Saul's story about regret and moving into reparative action it might include 
apologizing to those that we have hurt with our words, with our actions, with our intentions. It might also mean forgiving those who have harmed us with their words and their actions or intentions. It might also include forgiving ourselves of the things that we've done in the past. You see, it's not glossing over, it's not simply just apologizing, but it's moving to restorative action. Bringing forgiveness and restoration, bringing wholeness that we might move beyond misery and guilt and and mistakes and disappointment and blame and dysphoria and depression and paralysis. It's moving on to something else through reconciliation. And this last year, my kids were elated with the second Frozen movie that came out. You know the story of Elsa and Anna, the two sisters of Arendelle. One has the special powers to control ice. Well, if you haven't seen the movie, I can guarantee that a couple years ago, you heard that song, Let It Go, about a thousand times in a day on the radio. And the words go like this. The wind is howling like a swirling storm inside. Couldn't keep it in. Heaven knows I've tried. Don't let them in. Don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal. Don't feel. Don't let them know. Well, now they know. Let it go. Let it go. Can't let it hold it back anymore. Let it go. Let it go. Turn around and slam the door. I'm never going back. The past is in the past. Maybe a children's movie can teach us about putting the past in the past. Moving beyond regret. In fact, leveraging regret for our pre- is, is, is leveraging for our better present and future is the ultimate goal. We see this in the life of Saul. He could have let his past haunt him and consume him. He could have allowed his stupid, righteous convictions to leave him into a lifetime of self-blame and disappointment and and depression and paralysis. But what we learn from the life of Saul is that God can take our mistakes and reconcile them through unconditional love, leveraging them for something better. Saul will go on to do even greater things within the church because it is through the work of Saul that the gospel is reached in Asia Minor and Europe, leading thousands of people to follow Jesus and establishing church after church. And all this was possible because Saul allowed God to leverage his regret into something better for the present and for the future. Or as Paul put in 2 Corinthians, distress that drives us to God does that. It turns us around. It gets us back in the way of salvation if we never regret that kind of pain. But those who let distress drive them away from God are full of regret. They end up in the deathbed of regret. Regrets can teach us a lot about ourselves and how we handle the present and the future, taking responsibility for the choices that we've made, reconciling with those who've who've committed actions against us. It's the ability to accept yourself, to recognize the wider context of your actions, understanding that maybe you did not make the best decision at that given time, but the past is in the past. Make the right decision now. It's the ability to forgive of what others have done, allowing God to heal that wound, knowing that a scar might remain, but stepping forward into into a new tomorrow. 
Don't let another day go by looking regretfully at the past. Allow God to take the disadvantage of your past, reconciling it for a beautiful future. From our scripture this morning, we see the remarkable invitation to overcome our past. We are created by a God who's not in some distant cosmos seated on a throne, but a God who is present in our lives, equipping us to overcome what comes our way. This morning, may we have the courage to dump Saul and regrets and follow Jesus boldly, stepping beyond life's greatest obstacles. For our time